Welcome to the True Voice podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through past stories from amazing people. We're well into our first season and want to thank you all for all the fantastic support thus far. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have fantastic stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Tanyelle Cook-Artis. Tanyelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, LaShawn. Hope all is well. I'm, I'm fantastic on this side. Thanks for asking. Uh, tell us where you're uh, calling from today. I'm calling from Philadelphia, the minor section. All right. Now, we're going to talk about um, your journey. Uh, I always like to start at the beginning. So why don't you tell us, uh, you know, where were you born and uh, what was kind of your, your childhood experience like? Okay, I was born and raised here in Philadelphia in a minority section to a single mother. I have an older sister. We're like 15 months apart. Um, Mm -hmm. My grandmother also had a hand in helping raising us. So we all, it was a house full of women, put it that way. So it was myself, my sister, um, my mom, and my grandmother. So, you know, normal childhood. um, My mother worked two jobs to make sure that my sister and I had a the things that we needed um, growing up. Uh, I would say she was a strict mother, but she didn't, she was no nonsense. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she was no nonsense. She did not take uh, any teeth. No, she, she was, didn't play with us. So right. um, with two girls, um, but normal um, growing up, you know, you're in a neighborhood where it was, you could leave your door unlocked. Um, mm-hmm. You uh, communicated with your neighbors. The neighbors knew you. You knew your neighbors. The neighbors knew when you were doing something wrong. They corrected you. Then your mom corrected you. So it was like <laughs> it was like one of those worlds. It was like almost like a perfect world. But we was it was a unified, uh, you know, community. And I enjoyed, right. you know, I enjoyed my child. So, um, I mean, everybody as a child gets into some type of mischief. So you said they had to keep you guys in, in order. Give, give me one story. Bring it to life. Tell me, uh, like, what, what's one of the things where you're like, oh, they had to get us. Well, I, I would say it would be me because I was a. Uh... I remember I was coming home one day from uh, Catholic school and we used to go through our back door to get into the house. Mm-hmm. Well, I was chewing gum and I knew I was supposed to be chewing gum. Um, instead of spitting the gum out or swallowing the gum, I choose to put this gum underneath my uniform dress. <laughs> so the neighbor, the school cross girl who lived across the way from us saw, apparently saw it. Boy, that's like some eagle eyes. How can she exactly, see you doing that? Exactly, exactly. I mean, she was maybe like kind of like diagonal, two houses down diagonal. Well, wait, she, mom- wait, okay, well, I got a She <laughs> two houses down. You take out some gum from your mouth, put it underneath your uniform, and, and from two houses on an angle, she sees you. Exactly. And okay. I never knew she knew said anything to my mom until probably later that weekend. I don't know what I was getting in trouble about. So my mom got on me about whatever I was getting in trouble for that current at that current time, because mm-hmm. I was a, I was I was a child that always had to have the last word. Mm. And my mother said, you just cannot not have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then she eased that into there like, oh, yeah. So you're going to put gum chewing gum and put it underneath your dress. I said, how you she know, know about this? 
I was like, oh my God, you know this. I said, dang on these dang on neighbors. And I had a feeling who it was because she kind of described it, but I can say that's the only neighbor that I would know who would have said something mm-hmm. to my mom. So, so folks are kind of, I mean, even though you got in trouble, folks are looking out to make sure you're staying on the right track. Yes. And that was really throughout the whole entire neighborhood. Everybody knew everyone. Um, the children, us, and when we was growing up, we respected our elders. We respected our neighbors. When they told us to do something, we did. It's far mm-hmm. cry from what we're experiencing nowadays because these, this generation has no fear. But mm-hmm. when we was growing up, we feared, you know, not in a bad way, but in a way that we respected whomever we were um, coming counter with. It was hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We did that type of stuff. So that was like my upbringing. Um, right. on, on Temple Road in Philadelphia. Okay. Now, what were you interested in? What were your, you know, interests, hobbies? You know, what were uh, what was taking up your time outside of school? Well, when I was growing up, I liked to practice or mimic that I was teaching a class. I remember when we was out for summer breaks. I always would be in my grandmother's room. My sister was the type; she'd be down in the basement acting like she's a singer, um, but she could sing seriously. She could, but she would be down in the basement doing her thing, and I'm up in my grandmother's room acting like I have a little chalkboard teaching a class. <laughs> no, that's dope. Wait, wait, who are your students? <laughs> my students were nobody. Okay, you guys like some I dogs imagine, or something? Exactly. I imagine that somebody was there with me while I was teaching this class. Uh-huh. So that's what I did, you know, during the summer. That was like some of the hobbies where my sister and I, we would play on our, in our patio, play in our backyard or whatever. So my sister and I, we were very close. And like mm-hmm. I said, my mother was like one of those strict parents. She didn't have us running up and down the street. We were, if she was not there or my grandmother was not there, I was on the patio, always in the backyard playing. Okay. No, that she sounds... Knew what uh, we was at all time. That sounds cool. Now... As you start to, uh, you get older, you get to college, uh, I know you started at University of Minnesota. Tell me about how you got into that program, your time there, coming back home, kind of walk me through that experience. Well, uh, when I um, got accepted, was going through my college process and got accepted to school. The first school, one of the schools, the University of Minnesota, that was giving me a scholarship. So I was like adamantly telling my mom, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go that far away. Even when I got on the plane, she was with me, of course. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't want to go. And she said she was if she was getting ready to take me off, like say, okay, I got you. Let's just, we'll try this again. But we kept it going. Um, went through the process of getting um, into the school, you know, getting settled in or whatever. And then I wound up liking it. Um, one, because I liking it because I wasn't underneath the, the, the iron fist. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you go to school and you're like, oh, I can just, <laughs> I don't have to answer anybody. I don't have a curfew. I can uh-huh. just come in anytime I want. So, that was basically what was going on with me going to class, but then also trying to do the uh, the extracurricular activity life. And that kind of didn't work out for me too well. Um, right. I stayed there for about like, um, I think I came back in 90. I think it was 94, but uh, it was something that I needed to do because I was headed down the wrong path. So mm. I needed to come back home, regroup, get my mind focused, and just relax. Um, but Minnesota, when I was there, was nice. Of course, you know, when I went there, you know, you met somebody new every day. You uh, went to the Black Student Union. You always met somebody. Um, you is so cold there. So you will travel underground to get to your classes. I heard um, about this. There's like a tunnel or something. It's a tunnel to get from the East Bank to the West Bank mm-hmm. because it was so 
cold. I mean, it would be so cold you wouldn't realize the hair hair nostrils, the hairs in your nostrils had frozen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was so cold. And of course when I went there, I'm dressing like you know, got the boy jeans on, the big mm-hmm. sweaters. My mother's one time when I came over break, she said, You okay, you look like a boy. What what's going on? I said, It's cold here, mommy. It's freezing there. Mm-hmm. So I just had to figure out something to keep myself warm because I wasn't used to that type of weather. Philadelphia you get cold, but Philadelphia don't get that cold where it's such it gets so cold that they had to go in a state of emergency to shut the city down because it was wow. just that cold. That, that's chilly. Yeah. Now, so so you get back, um, you're back home for a little bit. Do you do you end up going back? I, d- I end up going back to school, but not University of Minnesota. I came home for a while, worked for a politician um, uh, as a constituent service representative. Then I got promoted to administrative assistant, kind of like running the office. Um, and then after a while, um, my mom and I was having a conversation. She said, this life is not going to last forever. So you need to figure out what you want to do. So then that's where, um, another politician who was a Bennett alum said, you need to go to Bennett college. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Bennett college. So she said, no, you need to go to Bennett college, Bennett college, all school, all girls school in, um, female school in Greensboro, North Carolina. I okay. said, okay, all right, I'll try. So then I decided, you know, go back to school and, you know, just start all over. Yeah. Now, going from, you know, Philly to the Midwest, then down to North Carolina, what was the, you know, any culture shock or you adjusted pretty well? Um, I adjusted pretty well. You know, in the Midwest, you had to adjust to um, the cold weather. Um, I mean, basically on campus, seeing, I I experienced seeing new people that look like me new people every day. I didn't see the same person every single day. So someone that looked like me, they, I could, I could meet, it's, it was never a moment I would not meet a new person. So it was like, you never ran into the person every day on the campus, um, which is, was kind of strange, but unless you had a class with them. But right. um, when I um, went down South, it was not a culture shock for me. It was more of a slower pace. Cause you know, Philadelphia is a little bit quicker but it was a slower pace. I I didn't have a problem with it because um, at that point I was um, 21, so I was more more under more understanding what I needed to do. So right, that, well, you had some life behind you at that point. Exactly. And, you know, so you're a non-traditional student, but you're like, okay, I know I got to focus. I, I got to be focus. out here playing around. No, 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 no. So you know when you hear the other kids talking about, oh, I got to call my parents and get some money. I'm like, okay, I don't do that. <laughs> right. I got to work. <laughs> at work and make it happen. So, um, no, it was, um, it wasn't really a culture shock. You know, you have that down South mentality, the, um, you know, how the mannerism is different. Uh, Sundays felt like a Sunday when I grew up, when I grew up on Sundays here in Philadelphia, you went to church, you came Mm -hmm. home, you had dinner with the family, you sit around me, watch some movies. It was quiet. People didn't mm-hmm. wash cars. People didn't go to hairdresser. People didn't do a whole lot of commercial commercial things doing on Sundays growing up, as what they do now. When you go down mm-hmm. south, it almost gives you that feel like, again. You know, so sometimes when I still visit, and we maybe leaving or go, leaving on a Sunday, it just has that comfort of people going to church, and it's just that calm, that quiet. And I did yeah. enjoy it when I was there. No, that's 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 good. Um, while you're in school. You got sick. Um, tell me about 
you know, kind of the, the moment when you first or, or what even uh, created the, the uh, moment for you to have to go and uh, figure out what was going on? Well, I would say before I um, went, left for Bennett College, the uh, June of 1990, it was in May of 1996, I was experiencing some excruciating pain in my side. We didn't know what it was. We kind of figured it was like old, you know, GYN issues with cystinal ovaries, whatever, things I used to experience as a child. Went into osteopathic hospital here in um, Philadelphia, which is now called PCOM, and my mom's old doctor, he called another doctor, and he, he got, they said, we got to see what's going on. So one day when I woke up from um, being asleep, I woke up to a bunch of people standing around my bed, and I'm like, oh, my God, am I dead? Mm. And I was like, oh, my Lord. So the infectious disease, the head of the infectious de- disease um, department was around my uh, in my room, along with some interns or whatever residents, um, Dr. Pasushi, and he's the one who diagnosed me with lupus. He, they did a series of tests and they said, your white cell count is low. And then when I was growing up, I one time fractured my knee in three places. Mm-hmm. I was in second grade. I remember the day, it was a Thursday. Somebody ran past me. They didn't even touch me. I fell, I guess, from the wind of their impact. I fell. That was it. By Sunday, mm. I couldn't even move getting out the bed. My grandmother had to, I was trying to get to her and say, Ben, mama, my, I can't move. My leg hurts so real, ba- real bad. So I fell in the, the, the hallway and she heard me. She came and got me and she took, called my mom. My mom worked 3 to 11. So when my mom got off at 11 o'clock, she took me to the emergency room, the nearest emergency room. When we got to the emergency room, you know, during that time, they questioned you, did anyone do anything to you? And I blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no one did anything to me. I remember when I was in the schoolyard on that Tuesday, and I'm in second grade, that somebody ran past me and I just fell. Well, come right. to find out, I fractured my knee in three places. Hmm. So from that point on, I always started having problems with my bones. So when I was in, fast forward, when I was in the hospital, um, the doctor, uh, he said, we looked at your white cell count. It is very low. Um, they looked at my um, sed rate. My sed rate was high. Um, then they was looking at some other things that was attributing to identifying that I had um, lupus. So um, from that point on, May of 1996, I was diagnosed with lupus. June of 1996, I had to go to Bennett College for a summer program before I started my actual semester. Mm-hmm. I went there, everything going well, until one day I was getting ready to go down. Um, it was semen steps going down in the basement of the dorm to do some laundry. My leg gave up, so I fell, mm-hmm. I fell down the rest of the steps. And it was probably it was like four steps I fell down, and they were semen. So mm-hmm. then I fractured the, the, the bone in my ankle, on crutches. It was one young lady, I'll never forget, um, she, uh, Jayla, she... Um, one day it started raining and Greensboro was known for just have these all of a sudden, no, no Nicolation is going to rain, but it rains and then it just stops all of a sudden. So I okay. had this cast on. I'm in the student union. She like, oh, we got to get you back to the dorm. We so got this little moment. <laughs> she literally lift me up from the wow. student union on one arm and then somebody else had me on the other arm and took me into the nearest dorm so I would my cast wouldn't get wet. I said, oh my gosh, you know, that was nothing but an angel. So yes. fast forward, um, I did the summer program, Was having didn't have enough financial aid to 
starting to fall that August and that fall. So I had to kind of wait until January of the following year, 1997, when the provost and everybody was able to find me funding and we got it straightened out. So I went there and everybody kind of knew what my story was because it was, they got introduced to it when I was on campus for the the fall. So the Dean, Dean Scarlett, she um, always watched out, looked out for me when um, I would be going to class one day and she knew I was having one of those days that, she could see me coming down one of the halls and one of the um, buildings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I guess I just was trying to make, and she said, Miss Cook, I want you to turn back around, go back to your room. I'll get you your work. And I'll let your professors know that you cannot make it to class today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm type of person that I keep trying. I'll, I will keep trying till it basically puts me flat on my back. And there's no other recourse, but to say, you can't do anything else. Um, so during my time at Bennett College, I did experience, you know, my my uh, flare ups um, mm-hmm. where I'd be trying to manage um, my day to day. But I didn't let that stop me. I stayed. Uh, I maintained a three point five. I was a UNCF scholar at um, Bennett College. I was an RA. I worked at a hotel. I worked at an art gallery, the African-American Atelier, which was founded by um, Dr. Alma Adams, who's also my um our professor pools, and that's also the congresswoman now for North Carolina. So mm-hmm. um, I did that. I did all of that, and sometimes I look back and say, "How did I do it?" But I, I, I basically can say it was nobody but the grace of God that got me through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets, still gets me through my day to day now. But you know, my college life. You know, once get doing that, my college life was good. Um, in spite of the illness, but I right. made it through, and I graduated, and. Went on and got my master's degree. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And congratulations. Now, Thanks. I mean, it's fa- it's great that you have that type of support structure, uh, uh, but it still requires that you have, you know, that resilience to kind of push through and fight. Uh, it's interesting. I know some people who uh, battle with lupus, uh, they don't get diagnosed um for a while, like sometimes it can be difficult to, to get a diagnosis. Was uh, Was there something either in the the doctors you were fortunate to be connected to or your scenario that helped them um, diagnose uh, maybe earlier than other folks? The doctors who I was connected to, it made it, it made, it was helpful because um, mm-hmm. it does take a while to get be diagnosed because basically I was in and out of the hospital for emergency reasons, not, not knowing what it was or what was going on. So basically it was difficult to diagnose until that one day when they just went through and did a series of tests and they found out that, you know, I had lupus, my, you know, between the seven rate and my white cell count, they um, asked other questions and looked at my history. And then that was the determination that, you know, I had, um, I had lupus. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, uh, probably in 2000, maybe they diagnosed me with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. Then a couple of years later, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So basically, fibromyalgia is almost is an autoimmune disease that affects your body. You know, you like different parts of your body you may touch. It's just very sore and tender. So you imagine having lupus that in a, that affects your your joints and your muscles because that's I have systematic lupus. Mm-hmm. Imagine having rheumatoid arthritis that affects your bones, <laughs> your joints. Right. And having fibromyalgia. So my doctor, Dr. Pusucci, he really called me the triple threat. 
where <laughs> all these things, these three already autoimmune diseases were not knowing what to do. So they fighting each other. So while they ah. trying to fight each other, my body is going through a tug of war. You yeah, know, you had the other. The exactly. Like I still have, I mean, I have it now. And then as of recently, I was uh, diagnosed with surgeon's disease, which you have to dry mouth and dry eye. Mm-hmm. So you got to make sure you got to, you got to keep all of those things in mind as you're, you're, you're dealing with that. Exactly. Now, you know, as you got older, when you, um, uh, I know you have a son, did you have to balance any of your, your uh, health considerations uh, during pregnancy? I did. Um, as a matter of fact, when I found out I was pregnant with my son, the doctor was not too happy. And this is why I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, when I got pregnant with my son. The doctor mm-hmm. was not happy with my husband and I of making the decision of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. It happened. We like, look, I, I said, let me just, the doctor was like, this is not a good idea. So they let us do what we had to do. We told, um, when I told my mom and my husband told his mom, they were not happy as well because they mm-hmm. knew the risk that we were taking of me carrying a child. Um, mm-hmm. In the beginning stages of me being pregnant with my son, I was, uh, the doctor had called me at work. I'll never forget that day. I had went through a series of tests because they knew I had lupus. So I was considered a high-risk patient. Um, high risk pregnancy when she um, took some tests. She called me and I was at work and told me, You're not going to carry this, this baby to full term. This, mm. this baby will abort at some point in time. And I'm like, You know, that day was just devastating. You know, I said, I can't believe this. And my director, she let me go home early that day because I just I couldn't function for the rest of the day. And I um, told my husband when he got off from work and we, you know, we talked it through or whatever. And we just said, We're we going to get through it. I did have mm-hmm. a high risk pregnancy, so they had to want to put me on bed rest because I was starting to have like a, like a lot of pains in my early stages with um, being pregnant with him. So I was on bed rest for probably a good amount of my pregnancy, probably like in the fourth month, I would mm-hmm. say. I was um, started a fifth month. Um, they put me on bed. So oh, okay. um, when I got was was time to deliver my baby. I had to start doing non-stress tests because being a lupus patient, being a high-risk pregnancy, you had to do non-stress tests. So I was doing non-stress. In the beginning, I was doing non-stress tests. Um, I think it was every other week. As I was getting closer to my due date, then I was doing non-stress tests every Wednesday. So that particular Wednesday, I did the non-stress test. The lady came, you know, they put you in this room, and it's basically to see how if the activity of the baby. So they will always tell me, because after a while, I would say, well, you need to drink a Pepsi before you come in here, something caffeine, put some sugar in your body so we can see him reacting to some. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So um, at that particular day, the nurse came in and she said, no, you in labor. I said, Mm-mm. she said, you don't feel anything. I said, no. <laughs> so she said, you're in labor. Oh, said, she's telling you, she's like, no. That's not a question. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're in labor. You're in labor. She said, we're looking at the chart on the outside and the screen, and you're in labor. I said, I don't feel a thing. So um, I went through my non-stress test. So after a while, I, I was hungry. I never get my husband took me to um, Lone Star. I said, I want to go to Lone Star. He said, okay. So I'm sitting there in Lone Star having contractions. And still mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, like, now tell me this. Uh, and I'm totally speculating, So, so correct me if I'm way off base, but you know, as you've been going through this, your your pain tolerance has to be higher. So do you think that influenced the fact that you weren't as aware that, that you were going through labor? I'm thinking 
Because if I didn't know anything and I wasn't feeling anything until they said something, and then and, and let me just backtrack. When I went through the non-stress test, they had me go to the hospital. They said, we need to send you over to the hospital just for precautions, seeing because you're in labor, see how far you are, how long, how much you have um, dilated, whatever, whatever. So when I went to the hospital and I was there for a couple of hours, they said, well, you haven't dilated that much, so we can think you can go home and you'll be fine. So that's when my um, husband and I, we went out to dinner and then I was, the contractions was coming more. So then I got home. I was working for uh, Dr. Adams at that time as a consultant. So I'm finishing some consultant work because I said, okay, well, if this is it, I want to have my assignments done. So she going to have to be waiting on me and get the stuff done. So I did that. I think I was doing something else around the house. And I, I was talking to my mom and she was in Philadelphia and I was in Greensboro. So she kept listening to her phone. She said, Tiny, I think you probably need to go to the hospital because I think your contractors are coming in a little close. So I said, yeah, it does seem... <laughs> Anyway, they have high high tolerance for pain. So yeah. my um uh I told my husband, I said, Mom said I probably need to go to the hospital. So we got ourselves ready and got prepared or whatever and went to the hospital. So when Miss was in the hospital, we was in this room, wasn't even in the room, my permanent room, we was in the room and uh after a while they like cleared the room. I think it was one of my girlfriends there, my husband, and the doctors just cleared the room, like, what's going on? They said he is not responding. So mm. they actually had to get him to respond um, to my contractions, which was not a, a, a was, and I'm not going to go into details. It was very uncomfortable and painful how right. they had to do. So uh, they said, we, 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 he's not responding. So after a while, oh, wow. they put me in the room and I was still going through the contractions. And the nurse said, you know, baby, she said, you don't have to go through this pain. We can give you an epidural. And I kept looking and I'm like, okay. All right, that's fine. So they gave me an epidural. She said, you're going, to hit, you're going to get three more contractions. After that, you won't feel anything, which I did. But then in the midst of all that, and like my husband said, you know, we let, kind of laugh at it to this day a little bit, but it was like serious at that point because it was a moment where my son's heart rate stopped and my heart rate was stopped. And mm. the, doctor told, the doctor told my husband, you're going to need to make a decision because we're losing oh, both of them. Oh, my so um, he said, all right, do whatever you have to do to save both of them. So I had emergency C-section. So um, had the emergency C-section. Uh, we, my son was born. His name is Noah. We called him Noah because biblical. We stayed with that. So we um, Noah was born. He was, um, he was healthy. He was at the point. Noah was, they called him post-mature, which I never heard of post-mature. He had stopped eating off the fat of my body and started eating off his own fat. So when he was born, he was actually sucking his arm. He wow. stopped relying on me for nutrition. He started relying on himself. So they took him away. My husband stayed with him. I like, it was so funny that he, he just left me. I'm like, hello, I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> he wanted to follow him and see what was, make sure his, the baby was fine or whatever. I said, look, I understand his first and only child I got. So um, we did that. And I was in the hospital for a couple of days, came home, um, went back for, was having, starting to have some pain, went back. Um, then Noah was, had to have his routine, you know, first being a newborn, went for his, went for his appointment. And then they they checked me out because I was having some issues and come to find out I had infection of the uterus. So I had mm. to go back in the hospital that following weekend. I had to ask them to let me take my son because I was breastfeeding at that time. So they allowed me to take Noah with me. 
Um, and my husband stayed with me as well just to make sure, you know, I was okay. So I didn't want to stay in the hospital for that weekend, getting fed interventionally, trying to get whatever the infection was in my body out. So, um, fast forward, um, we was in North Carolina. I kept getting sick cause my illness, cause with lupus, they told me you could get going remission or you can get worse when you have a baby. I got worse. So I kept getting sick. So at one point, um, my mom said, I think you probably need to come back home so we can help you take care of the baby. Cause my husband working, I'm trying to manage, take care of the baby and barely trying to hold on or whatever. So we wound up relocating back to um, Philadelphia in 2003, January of 2003. So mm-hmm. this is where we've been ever since. Wow. Baby is healthy. Yeah. My son is 18 years old. Always fear that he, you know, I, don't, I know it's not hereditary, but I always say I want to get him tested to make sure that he does not have any of the traits of lupus in his body. Right, right. Well, that I means it's fantastic that you got to all of those all through all of those struggles, uh, you know, safely. Um, yeah. uh, that's uh, that's interesting. I want to I want to connect, you know, that's your that personal journey uh, professionally. Um, you know, when you're dealing with uh, kind of a lifelong illness, you still have to stay strong and you're trying to figure out how you're going to go, um, you know, develop your career. Exactly. Uh, I know you were uh, you're a chief of staff for a while. Uh, tell me about tell me about that experience. Um, I was uh, first when I would move back here um, was hard trying to find a job. But one day um, who was she was a staffer then um, and now she's a councilwoman, uh, Councilwoman Sherelle Parker. She was working for then Councilwoman Marion Tasco, and I just said, I need to find a job. I need a job. And she said, okay, I'm going to call you back. She called me back, and they offered me a position in the Councilwoman's office. So from that point on, I did that, and then she decided to run for state representative. And once she ran for state representative, she asked me, she said, would you like to be my chief of staff? And I said, let me think about it. Um, and after a while, I decided I would be her chief of staff. What would you have to think about? Um, think about if that wanted to do that life because it is very demanding. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, you can go to this job and just go home. You know, you may have events here. You can go home, but chief, chief, of, chief staff, of staff, you got to be all in. <laughs> you got to be all in, making sure everything is done, managing the staff and all that right. stuff. So I told her, I said, I would do it. Mm, okay. So from that point on in um, 2005, I think it was October 2005. I was her chief of staff for 10 years. Mm. Um, um, enjoyed doing it. I enjoy helping people. Um, basically, my role was managing the office, making sure the Harrisburg office was good, um, making sure everything was done like they're supposed to be done, you know, making sure constituents get what they need, making sure our events, you know, go off without a hitch. We had a good staff. I enjoy working with the people that I worked with in the years as I was uh, her chief of staff. Once she um, decided, once the then uh, city council person, Marion Tasco, decided to retire. Sherelle decided she wanted to run for that seat. So she resigned from her seat from a state, well, retired from a seat from state rep and then ran for city council. Once she ran for city council and won successfully, I told her I wanted to run for her seat. So in 2016, I ran for her seat, won my special election that was in April, but lost my primary. That was mm-hmm. in um, May. Oh, no, March. March and then the primary was in April. So lost the um, primary in April. Uh, 
So I did have like a little short stint of a state rep. Enjoyed it. Um, do I miss it? Yes, because I love um, just trying to make a change in my right. community as well as in the world as a whole, but mostly, you know, in the community. So from that point on, um, after I, that happened, then I um, wound up becoming, um, someone called me one day um, from the governor's office and saying, was I interested in to this, a manager of government relations at a transportation by state agency, Delaware Report Authority? And I said, hmm. I said, let me think about it. Um, what does, what, what is that agency? Because I yeah, never worked yeah. in transportation before. And it's that basically you're following the transportation issues, infrastructure issues, and locally, statewide, and federal. And I said, okay, that's I can do that. That's you know something new. So it's me, me in this role, I'm meeting new electeds from both sides of the river. You know, you when you work in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, you're basically dealing with just Philadelphia politics. But now you're dealing with Jersey, um, both sides of the Delaware River. So I met, you know, I work with electeds in federal, local, and state level from both sides. And I enjoy it. I've been there going on three years, almost four years. Uh, so I find it to be fulfilling. Anything I do, I try to do it to the best of my ability. Uh, I'm learning something new every day. Never profess that I know everything is all. Everything is a learning curve for, but I enjoy. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Um, you know, given your experience in, in local politics, which a lot of us need to get, I think, both better educated and more engaged with mm-hmm. uh you know, if we fast forward to some of the challenges that we're seeing across the country right now, um, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, kind of a renewed, broader interest in uh, social and racial inequality. Like there's just so much going on. Um, w- what do you think that everyday citizens could do a better job at or, or ways that they could get involved that may not be obvious to us? Um. Really, it's, it's, not, it's not saying stuff that's not obvious. It's about, you know, voting, of course. <laughs> um, right, voting, step one. <laughs> step one, voting is important. We can't complain about stuff when you're not um, willing to cast your vote because people fought for us to have the right to vote. And for us not to exercise that right, to me, is just dangerous and it's not what you need to do. So mm-hmm. voting is the first thing, getting yourself connected to community organizations that have a purpose of making a change in the community. You know, you have some organizations that have their own personal agenda or more of like a political agenda. But at the end of the day, they can go home to their respective suburban homes and be away from the issues that may be going on in, in the inner city. But if you're mm-hmm. connecting yourself with an organization that has that is that really is making a change in the community on a daily basis, no matter what, and it's continuing. Um, one of the things I was talking to um, one of the organizations I'm a uh, part of, we started a uh, racial equality um, subcommittee group. What's the name of the organization? Um, East Minority Neighbors. Okay. Um, and one of the things I told them is that we can't just have this conversation about racial equity or equality when something drastically happens in our community. The killing we don't need to wait for like something horrible to happen no, to get motivated. No, with George Floyd, this stuff is, police brutality has been happening for years. We know in the civil rights era what they used to do. So it's been here, but we, the conversation just comes and go. 
And then when if something drastically happens, then we want to start the conversation. You'll hear the conversation for probably about a couple of months, maybe a half a year, whatever. And then ever, uh, again, then again, it goes silent. People we, get distracted. We can't get distracted. We can't allow issues and other events to distract us from for, to pursuing that issue of racial equality and equity. We got to keep that conversation going. So how do people keep their motivation and focus so they, hold they don't people get accountable? Hold hold elected officials accountable. Hold them accountable on what needs to be done in the community. If they saying they want to do X, Y, and Z, you got to touch, see, and feel what they're doing. If they just mm-hmm. saying making all these empty promises, I don't believe in empty promises. Stop making promises that you know obviously you can't keep because it's just as a campaign ploy. You can say, I'm not going to make you a promise, but I'm going to promise you this. I'm going to strive to try to, you know, make a change or strive to try to, to keep introduce legislation that will keep the conversation going. So we just have to hold ourselves accountable, teach our children the next generation. Like I told my son, he's 18 now. You are the next generation. You are, are going to be our leaders. So you have to stand up for something. Understand why you're standing up for it. Just don't do it because it seems sexy at the time. You got to understand the real background reason why you're standing up for this issue. And if you're going to stand up on this issue, you're going to fight and you're going to fact check your stuff and you're going to make sure what you your what you stand for is going to be something that's going to move your community forward. So Absolutely. that's yeah. what, you know, one of the things that I tried to instill in him. And I just, you know, want young people know anybody, young, old, middle age, millennial, whatever. Just make sure your message and your fight does not stop at by we talking about in January and by September is off the radar. Keep it going. Right, right. Keep the movement going. Don't stop. Because back in the day, Dr. Martin Luther King, the late, um, we just watched his funeral yesterday. Congressman um, John Lewis, they didn't stop. They kept fight. Mm-hmm. And our generation or the generation that's ahead of us are so quick to just give up. You got to see it through. You got to see it through. You got to see it through to the end. It may not give you the results that you want at that point. But if you keep fighting at some point in time, you're going to win. You're going to win. Yeah. Um, as we talk about that, you know, that dedication, that motivation, all those things folks need to see through. Um, I wanted to wrap up um, talking about, you know, yourself, someone who's, um, you know, living with lupus and in the current state of the pandemic, you know, how do you have to move differently? How do you like, like, what do you have to do on top of what everyone else is doing? um, You know, because of what you're dealing with on the health side. I have to um, be safe. Uh, I don't go out much. Uh, when I do go out and maybe once or twice a week, um, I have to check in on my grandmother who is um, 90 years old. Mm-hmm. So, but pretty much I'm really just a home buy. Um, if, if it's stuff that has to be done at the store, my husband does it. Uh, I go in the office one day a week. Um, I didn't go in at all this week. <laughs> and so I may go in next week, but I just have to be very careful not being around large crowds. I wear my mask. And I just have to be very careful. And that's, you know, people have to understand, you know, I don't go out, they invite you. Oh, you know, everybody has their mask on. We'll be social distant. I'm like, yeah, but I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and my house is the safe. <laughs> my house yeah, is safe. Uh, I hear that. Um, 
Does your, um, for your illness, do, do you take HDQ? Um, I was taking, um, which is the genetic name is Plaque Renew. I was taking it, and as a matter of fact, before the pandemic, my doctor was thinking about putting me back on it. So the mm-hmm. pandemic happened. So I have an appointment um, in a couple of weeks. So I have to see what she's going to decide to do. If it's because I used to take that, I used to take um, methotrexate, I used to take prednisone for years. I used to have to do my own injections. I had rheumatoid infusions um, that I did. So basically, she'll have to decide how to get me back on course because I'm so off the charts right now. Because you right. no medicine, haven't been able to go to the doctors, but you know, and my appointment is virtually. So you're not actually in the doctor's office with them. You're having to do this virtually. Right. So they got to find the balance. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting on how folks who have been using certain types of medicine, um, you know, now that um, folks are just looking for any way to kind of figure out if those existing medicines could help the broader population. Mm-hmm. There's also the balance of making sure the folks who need it, who it's proven to work for, um, you know, how do we, yeah, that's available for them. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a, a tricky balance. It is. It is. Um, as as we're wrapping up, uh, I guess, you know, an interesting question, I, I think, for everyone, as you've been going on your journey so far, uh, you're definitely somebody who, uh, you know, you're you're determined, clearly. Right. Uh, you're also compassionate. Uh, you, you seem very family oriented um, as you've been helping folks. I mean, I know you're involved uh, in uh, lupus advocacy and mm-hmm. uh, some of the supporting foundations. Where, where do you think is, uh, again, the area that other folks who don't know much about some of these uh, these issues or causes. Um, you know, where can they put their attention and their energy to help out? Um, learn about our. Of course, when we're talking about lupus, and that's be my conversation is that we we're trying to increase the awareness within the community because a lot of people don't know about lupus. They may have heard about lupus, but they don't know about lupus, or they may say, "I may know somebody may have it, or I may have it." You know, a lot of people say different things, but educating them them on what lupus is, um, educating them how we need to find a cure because there is no cure, um, educating them on what our organization do in terms of uh, the whole general national lupus foundation with research, um, how the monies that we raise go within the research of trying to find a cure. But just, you know, letting folks know that, you know, we are here and what this illness is. Um, lupus is not a household name. It's not like a, a a disease as you talk about between, you know, cancer and Alzheimer's and all that. It's, it's totally um, not a conversation piece. So we're trying to, as Lupus Foundation, we're trying to increase the awareness of this mystery disease within the community. That makes sense. And and where can people find more information if they're, you know, they're brand new and they're like, I just need the one-on-one basics. Is there kind of a, a starting website or something that someone yes, could visit? go to the lupusfoundation.org, Tri-State Philadelphia chapter. That will bring them to our website and they'll be able to see all the work that we're doing, as well as meet our board of directors, which all the information is on there. Um, but just to get to know who we are, there's a number one there um, that will, can help them. Um uh, uh, you know, get to us who are the CEO, Cindy Messler. She would uh, get to her, someone in our staff to assist them on any issue that they may need um, or help with the assistance that they may need with lupus. We also provide um, small scholarships for lupus um, patients if, if, if they're not able to pay for any of their medicines. Um, so that's another thing that we have 
through the Guggenheim um, scholarship fund that we uh, uh, provide funding for, if for individuals that may not be able to afford their medicines or co-payments um, as a lupus patient. Oh, that's great. It's excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that. And and thank you again for joining us today. That was uh, great to hear uh, your story. And uh, it's always great to raise awareness where uh, we can make sure that uh, folks that we may not have even been thinking of are like, oh, maybe there's a way for us to help out. So I appreciate you joining us. That was great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Excellent. And thanks to everyone who has joined us today in this conversation with Tanyelle. Uh, it was fantastic. Hope you enjoyed your time. As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.